We've been in some heavy-hitting passages. Our Sundays have been great in Judges together. Uh, but uh, every now and then, we're just going to hit the reset button and look somewhere else in Scripture. And uh, so that's what we're doing today. We're going to spend some time with Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically in a passage known as the Beatitudes today. Um, several years ago, my wife Melissa and I had the opportunity to take a trip to Israel. It was a great trip. And part of that trip was touring these old Byzantine-era churches. And you walk in and you feel like you've stepped into a different planet. Uh, the ceiling's incredible, the architecture amazing. To think that these massive structures were built by people less civilized than us is just astonishing. You know, you feel like you're transported. And so we were walking out of one of those churches on this tour one morning, and I was talking to another pastor who was on the trip with us, and this guy had a few more miles on the odometer than I had, and I said to him, I said, isn't this just astounding, this type of architecture? Don't you think it, it says something to us about how we get church architecture wrong? I mean, may, shouldn't we design our buildings so that people feel like they're stepping into a majestic presence, that, that there's something different about that space? And this very wise pastor said to a, a, a foolish pastor, he said, uh, he said, you know, for the first several years of our church's existence, we met in a double-wide trailer. And a church was established there, and the gospel was preached there, and people were saved there, and lives were changed there, and people were married, and we buried godly men and women. And he said it, it was an ugly church, but there was something heavenly about it. So I didn't talk anymore the rest of the trip. <laughs> yeah, he was right. I was wrong. Uh, so many of us have this thought that external actions are what develop the internal life. But Jesus viewed things so very different. Here at the beginning of this beautiful passage of Scripture, we, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, all one teaching unit. Here at the very beginning of this teaching unit, Jesus starts by defining the disciples' life according to what is inside. Imagine, imagine we have Jesus with us this morning. Jesus, tell us, what should the disciples' life be like? He doesn't talk about church attendance, although that's important. He doesn't talk about a whole bunch of external things, though externals are important. He doesn't talk about a lot of things you and I might expect him to talk about, political affiliation, certain decisions. What he talks about is the internal life. This is what the attitude of the disciple is supposed to be like. So it begs the question of you and I, what is our inside like today? What emotions dominate your waking moments? Your church clothes may tell a different story than what's happening inside you today. You might be defined by fear or doubt or anger or bitterness. There's any number of things that could be going on inside of us this morning and so it's a good thing you came to church because Jesus has a word for you. He wants to speak directly to you and I as his followers and help us understand what this inside-out way of living is really like. So here's the setting. 
since we've just parachuted into Matthew chapter 5 today. It's very early in Jesus' public ministry, according to Matthew anyways, where he gives us this unit of teaching. Jesus is in a region called Galilee. Galilee is not where Jerusalem is found. Uh, Galilee is a little more blue-collar, certainly uh, a Jewish region of that part of the, of the country. And, uh, and Jesus, we're told at the end of chapter 4, is traveling around Galilee, and people are bringing to him all of their sick, and Jesus is healing all of them. Healing the sick, casting out demons, incredible miracles and acts of grace as chapter 4 closes. From those acts of grace, Jesus then steps into chapter 5 into these instructions about what it is to be his follower. He goes up on a hillside and his disciples gather around him. We'll read that in just a second. And Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. It's important that you and I keep the primary audience in mind as we step into these very familiar words. Jesus is speaking to disciples about what it is to be a disciple. In essence, he's speaking to believers about what it is to be his follower. Now, to be sure, there is a crowd around Jesus and his disciples who are not part of the disciples, who are not followers of Jesus. The Hebrew word for this crowd is looky-loos. They are there just to hear and see what's going on. Jesus is talking to the disciples. There's a crowd. At the end of chapter 7, that crowd comes into focus. They're astonished at the authority with which Jesus teaches. So there's these people who are there investigating, the disciples to whom Jesus is speaking directly. And you and I might be in either one of those crowds today. You might be a follower of Jesus, but your internal life is a train wreck. Spiritually dry, your prayer life is non-existent, your time in the Word's not happening, you're clocking in and clocking out of church and calling it good. Or you might be a part of that crowd on the outside looking in who's investigating curious about what's going on what is it that jesus really says what is it to be a follower of his i've seen examples that maybe weren't such great examples i want to know from jesus what it is to be a follower of his so regardless of whether you sit on the inside or you stand on the outside jesus is speaking to you today for sure so chapters 5, 6, and 7 are this large unit of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. The closest thing we have to, to what we might call a personal manifesto from Jesus. And here at the beginning, he gives us this familiar passage, familiar to us now anyways, that we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are eight attributes that ought to mark the life of every single Christian. Uh, the Beatitudes are not ethical duties, they're a set of eight fundamental emotional attitudes. And so if a person aligns their thinking and their actions with these emotional attitudes, Jesus says our life will be blessed. And he doesn't leave that concept of being blessed as fuzzy and vague. He's very particular about what this blessing looks like. And so my purpose today in preaching this, I think if we study the Beatitudes right, you and I are going to walk away on a pursuit of the mind of Christ. You and I are going to live an inside-out discipleship. We're going to pay attention to our hearts and our affections for the Lord. We're going to pay attention to our heart and affections for people around us. And we're going to be the kinds of disciples that Jesus wants us to be. So I want you to listen with fresh ears and new eyes as we read the Beatitudes. Follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 1. 
Now when he, the he there is Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's how we're going to handle this today. One, when's the last time you read that? Isn't it amazing? Absolutely beautiful. Two, we're going to drink from the fire hydrant this morning. It, I promise you it will be information overload. Not time overload, just information overload. So what I would encourage you to do today is maybe take scant notes, but really listen well. Listen with your heart. And then maybe this week you go back and you listen to the sermon again online if you want to get some more detailed notes. But there's no cutesy way for me to package this or to treat this. We're just going to walk one by one through these eight attributes. At the end, I'll give some summary statements that will help us package it up so we can carry it home with us and put it on the coffee table. And uh, we can be owned and defined by these teachings of Jesus. But here's some things that you and I ought to think about when we read the Beatitudes. First and foremost, for us to get our mind around what it is we've just read. Here's the way we ought to think about these. First of all, these attributes, uh, these are not attributes that result in salvation. These are the attributes that come from salvation. One of the difficulties in studying the Sermon on the Mount and even the Beatitudes is we might look at this and say, well, Jesus puts all these requirements on us for entrance into the kingdom. But that is a false way of understanding what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not telling us how to get into the kingdom. He's telling us how to live once we are in the kingdom. You and I have a squeamish relationship with the grace of God and the law of God. Sometimes we feel like it's got to be all of one or the other. We struggle to find that happy medium. But here's a way of thinking about it that might be helpful to you. Martin Luther and other reformers described the relationship between the law and Christ this way. They would say this, The law sends us to Christ for our justification. We look at the law, all the requirements, we say, There's no way! I could never do all of this, never achieve righteousness on my own. And that is right. And that's the right understanding of the law. We look at all the requirements and we would say, I, I could never achieve that. Therefore, we've got to find someone to help us. And there's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your sins so that you could know eternal life. So the law sends us to Christ for our justification. And then Christ sends us back to the law for our sanctification. You got that? We come here as believers learning how to live in the lane of the kingdom of God. 
What is it to be Christ's follower? It's not just pray some prayer, do some religious act, and then show up on holidays and call it good. These, uh, the Sermon on the Mount has all these ethical instructions for us, things we uh, strive for. We won't meet all of them. That's why we have a salvation by grace. But for you and I, we're not to find in the Beatitudes any instructions for how to, how to be saved, but how to live as saved. Another thing it's important for you and I to understand about the Beatitudes, we should approach these as a whole unit, one unit. Not eight separate things, but one whole description of one whole follower of Jesus. Every believer ought to be marked by every one of these characteristics. We don't get to just cherry pick the ones we like. Oh, I can, I, I, I'm all about being poor in spirit, but forget that peacemaking. That's not for me. We don't get to do that. So think about the way you approach the fruit of the Spirit. When you think about Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, you don't say, I'll take peace, peace and patience, but uh, I'm going to jettison these others that I'm not so good at. No, we take it as a unit, and so that's what we do here with the Beatitudes as well. These are characteristics that are to mark every single follower of Jesus Christ. Another thing you need to know about the Beatitudes, they are not prized by the world around you. Mankind does not fall naturally into this way of thinking and being. So when you decide to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ, you are choosing a counter-cultural life. You will be at enmity with the world around you. You will not find a comfortable place to live and breathe and do your business. You will find yourself living your life against the stream of culture and sin. One last thing that's helpful whenever we study the Beatitudes is just to make sure you notice that in each of the Beatitudes, there is a requirement given and a reward promised. A requirement is given and a reward promised. And when we walk through the eight of these very quickly here in a moment, you'll see that. So the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the requirement. To be poor in spirit is what you and I would identify as the requirement in verse 3. Blessed is the poor in spirit. What's the reward? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every one of the Beatitudes, requirement and reward. As followers of Jesus, we're to live this way. And as followers of Jesus, he will bless us this way. All right? You with me so far? I'll take what I can get. All right, let's dive in. We'll start here with verse 3. We're just going to go one by one. We'll move briskly through them, add some explanation, and then at the end, I'll give you a structure that will help you carry it with you. All right? So here we go. The first beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It'd be easy for us to lose focus here once we see the word poor. We might take this verse to be a description of the supreme value of impoverished people or even of vulnerable populations. But that would be an incorrect interpretation and understanding of verse 3. To be sure, Jesus is very concerned about impoverished people and vulnerable populations. He is very concerned about them. But this verse is not the one in which we find that concern voiced by Jesus. His concern in verse 3 is not simply for the poor, but for the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit and poor in pocketbook are two different types of poverties. 
So Jesus' concern is with those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize our spiritual poverty. Indeed, our spiritual bankruptcy before God. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that we are hopeless in and of ourselves. We are by nature objects of wrath. We are desperate sinners incapable of rescuing or saving ourselves. This, the requirement from Jesus is that you and I would have this kind of mind about us, that we would be poor in spirit, owning and understanding our sin and its consequences. Now, if we get this wrong, if we're not the kind of people who are poor in spirit, our automatic assumption might be, well, I would be the opposite of that. So what is the opposite of poor in spirit? It's not rich in spirit. The opposite of poor in spirit is self-righteousness. Poor in spirit says this, I'm a sinner and I need rescue. The opposite of that is, whew, I'm good. I got this. I, I, am a, I am an asset to your kingdom, God. You are lucky to have me on your side because of my gifts and talents and everything that I come with. Self-righteous. You can be a very religious person and be self-righteous. Get verse 3 wrong altogether. But the person who is poor in spirit realizes they're a sinner. They recognize there's nothing good within them. We need rescue. We need God's grace. So does Jesus expect us to be perfect in spirit? No. Does he want you to be a green beret in spirit? No. Mighty in spirit. Poor in spirit. That's the target. That's where we're going to go. And when you are this type of person, poor in spirit, Jesus promises that you'll receive a blessing. And what kind of blessing are you given? Verse 3, these are the people to whom the kingdom of heaven is given. So here at the very beginning of this significant unit of teaching, Jesus defies all human expectations regarding the kingdom of God. It's the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom. Not spiritual ninjas and superheroes and and the people that we think just walk on water. It's the poor in spirit. People who know they are sinners and who need what a gracious God can give. So the kingdom of God belongs to addicts and liars and gossips and felons and those who are in sexual sin, both heterosexual and homosexual It belongs to the losers, the wimps, the outcasts, the broken, the tired. Every sinner who recognizes they need what only God can give receives the kingdom of heaven. But you already know this. Do you know how you already know this? Because you have been walking with us through the book of Judges this summer. And with every new episode in the book of Judges, we meet an Israel that is bankrupt in spirit and sometimes they're so bankrupt they don't even know and what does the gracious god of salvation do he makes a way he acts for their deliverance for their salvation in the book of judges we see in miniature what you and i know as easter sunday A deliverance in full through the gift of Jesus Christ. How crazy is that? The God of judges is the God of the Beatitudes. Who'd have thunk it? But he is giving the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor in spirit. The second Beatitude is in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Again, this is one that I, I think we get wrong very easily and innocently. It seems straightforward. Those who mourn will be comforted. It seems to be a promise that, that says all those who are grieving, whatever the situation, are going to find comfort in God. And this verse has been used by many people to claim that comfort and to rest in that comfort. Uh, and for sure, God is a God who comforts the grieving. Psalm thirty four eighteen tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. But when we look at verse 4 in the context of what comes before and what comes after, it's a different type of mourning that Jesus has in mind here. This is not the mourning that comes from grief, but rather it's the sorrow that comes from an awareness of our sin. As one writer put it, confession is one thing, contrition is another. The Christian life is to be a joyous life for sure, but it is It is not all laughter and joy. There are such things as Christian tears. And too few of us ever experience them. The psalmist did. Psalm 119, 136. He says, My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. He's mourning over sin. Philippians 3, 18. We'll read it next Sunday. For I have often told you and now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul mourns the sin of other people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. You may know that place well. Perhaps you've cried over the sinful choices of people you love and that you are desperate to see come to Christ. But have you ever mourned your own sin? In Romans 7.24, Paul says, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this dying body? There's not enough sorrow for sin among us. When a sinful person catches a glimpse of the blazing eternal holiness of God, there's going to be some tears. We cannot come into contact with the God of creation and walk away glib, indifferent, the same as we were before there's going to be emotion in our sanctification and what does christ promise to those who mourn over their sin you're not going to be left in those tears you're going to be given comfort you grieve your sin you will be comforted and they will be comforted with the only type of comfort that can relieve their distress that comfort is the free forgiveness of god you grieve your sin What a wretched man am I. And God comes to lift you with his gracious, merciful, forgiving hand. The greatest of all comfort is the removal of our sin and the gift of Christ's righteousness. So God's comfort is not some heavenly Kleenex and a pat on the back and send you out the door. We're given the comfort of forgiveness because Christ absorbed the brutality of God's wrath at the cross. He took all the punishment your sin requires so you could know the comfort of forgiveness. This third beatitude in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now the word meek doesn't get a lot of usage in everyday conversations. It, It means gentle, humble, considerate, courteous. So when you and I think about meekness as it pertains to our relationship to God... The meek person is the one who lives in complete dependence on God 
in complete submission to him. If I'm meek before God, he gets to be God, I get to be his servant. He's going to set the path for me. He's going to give the direction, the instruction. I'm going to trust his word. In meekness, I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to push back. I'm going to submit myself to the word of God. Now, meekness is not an attribute that's prized in our culture. There is, if you'll allow me a football illustration, there is a running back for the Oakland Raiders whose name is Marshawn Lynch. He has a nickname. Because of his violent way of running the football, his nickname is Beast Mode. You want a running back with a nickname like Beast Mode no one would be excited to have meek mode on their team. <laughs> Belichick, we got a secret weapon this year. It's great. Old meek mode's going to run the ball for us. It's going to be great. <laughs> no one is going to be pumped up. No one's driving to Foxborough for meek mode. But power looks different in the kingdom of God. I think the Virgin Mary personifies meekness for us when she tells the angel of the Lord in Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. That's what meekness looks like. Those meek and gentle servants of the king are not without reward. They inherit the earth. That's big. We would expect just the opposite. We would expect for the meek people to be human doormats, forgotten by history, just run over by the progress of humanity, but far from it. These meek followers of the gentle and lowly Jesus receive a spiritual inheritance, a royal inheritance prepared for them by Jesus himself. The meek inherit the earth. Fourth beatitude, we're halfway there. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, hunger and thirst in Scripture are metaphors for intense longing. And, and you know that. You hunger for something, you thirst for something, you really, really want it. Now, these metaphors may not be as meaningful to you and I in America today as they were to the first century Jew. Few of us, I, I won't say all of us, but I would say few of us have ever experienced true hunger or thirst. Few of us have ever had to carry the jerry can to the well to get our water for the day. Few of us have ever had to go days without food. Few of us know what hunger and thirst are really like. Few first century Jews had not experienced that. They were all well acquainted with poverty and famine and drought. When we experience drought, the only damage is to your lawn. I mean, what kind of a first world entitled problem is that? Curse you city leaders and your water rationing. Destroying my fescue. How could you do this to me? But drought in other parts of the world means dead children. And dead grandparents, it doesn't just mean dead lawn. So Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are filled. The psalmist thirsted for God like a deer panted for streams of water. The disciples of Jesus are those types of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
We're to be the kind of people who long to literally be righteous. The pursuit of our day, the aim of our thinking and action is to think and act and live and be the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what's the reward for the followers of Jesus who hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does he tell us? They will be filled. There's something beautiful in the fact that this filling is not something the disciple attains on his or her own. It doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will fill themselves. It says they will be filled. Who does that filling? If you hunger for righteousness, who feeds you righteousness? Only God. He's going to meet that desire. He's going to meet that need. So every disciple who comes to Jesus with this request, Lord, fill me with righteousness, finds God's yes every time. He will not say no to that request. Now, let's stop at that halfway point and think about these first four Beatitudes. All four of them have something in common, and it's this. Those four Beatitudes describe what the disciples' attitude towards God is to be like. If we are poor in spirit, that happens in the context of our relationship with the Lord. If we mourn for our sin, we do that in the context of relationship with God. If we are meek, if we are submitted to God and His will, then that happens in relationship with God. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we're pursuing God. The first four Beatitudes are all about your relationship with God. That must mean that the next four Beatitudes happen in a different direction. Let's see if you can pick it up before we get there. The fifth beatitude is in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We don't talk a lot about mercy. We may sing about it every now and then. We'll talk about grace. We'll talk about love. But mercy isn't always on the radar. So what is mercy? In this context, mercy is compassion for people in need. Mercy is, only, if you're going to show mercy, it's only going to happen in a relationship with another person. You're not the one to show mercy to the Lord. He's going to show mercy to you. And then because you are a recipient of mercy, you're going to show mercy to others as well. Now, Jesus doesn't specify the types of people he has in mind to whom you and I are to show mercy. He doesn't say, be merciful to those who deserve mercy. Be merciful to those who are like you. And who you want to be in your orbit. He just says, be merciful. So if you've got someone in front of you with a beating heart and lungs that are pumping, there's your target of mercy. Mercy involves forgiving others for their sins as an expression of gratitude to God for His gracious forgiveness to us. It involves acting kindly and compassionately to those who are hurting and broken. But the world around us is very different. Mercy is not a prized characteristic. Our world loves revenge and finds forgiveness foreign. But those followers of Jesus who show mercy find mercy. This is not because we earn mercy from God by being merciful. It's not as if Jesus is telling us here, you need 12 acts of mercy and then mercy will be shown to you. The only way you know what mercy looks like is because you have received mercy from God. Any of our attempts to show mercy apart from knowing the mercy of God, 
would be foreign to God's concept of mercy entirely. It's interesting. We, we just talked about meekness. And meekness involves being aware that we are sinners. But to be merciful is to have compassion on others because they also are sinners. So blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. The next beatitude, the sixth one, in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart is an emphasis on internal purity. This purity of heart is a sincere and authentic disposition that moves the disciple to pursue righteousness and compels him or her to live obediently. Psalm 24, 4 states the conditions for worshiping God in the holy place were to have clean hands and a pure heart. Now, my understanding here of purity of heart may deviate a bit from others. So feel free to disagree with me on this and we'll still be in heaven together one day. In Scripture, purity of heart is always connected to our hands, the works that we do. Heart and hands are always connected in Scripture. So clean hands start with a pure heart. Those who can come before God are not just those with clean hands. It's pure heart and clean hands that bring us before the Lord. So if I have internal purity, that's going to be manifested outwardly in the things that I do, in an active, righteous act. So I would say this, that purity of heart is that cleansing from God. He brings that purity of heart. It's that cleansing from God that results in holy living. God purifies us from all sin And then in response, you and I live out that purity among others. Jesus goes on in the Sermon of the Mount, if you wanted to read more in the week ahead. He goes on to be more specific about what a pure heart looks like. What what do you know about what Jesus says about the heart in the Sermon on the Mount? He, He says the pure heart is the abandonment of lust. Because if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. The pure heart is the abandonment of hate because if you hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. It's the abandonment of materialism. These are all things that exist internally before they exist externally. And what's the payoff? What's the blessing for being a person who's pure in heart? You're going to see God. Old Testament people longed for this great privilege to see God. Moses came the closest And he was only able to see the back of God squinting through a crack in the rocks. So you, you get a privilege that Moses only dreamed of. You will see him now with eyes of faith and you will see his glory in the life to come. The pure in heart will see God. Seventh beatitude, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Every true Christian, every true Christian is to be a peacemaker in the community and in the church. We should never seek to cause conflict or escalate conflict, but rather we're called to peace and to actively pursue peace, to strive for peace with all men and so far as it depends on us to live peaceably with all people. Now, peacemaking is God's work. This is what God himself does. And what does God's peacemaking look like Think about how you have peace with God. God's peacemaking is reconciliation 
through self-sacrifice. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 illustrates this for us. It says that through Jesus, God has reconciled everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. It's reconciliation through self-sacrifice. And what's the blessing for the person who is a peacemaker? You'll be called a son of God, a child of God. That should come as no surprise that the people who pursue peacemaking, a godlike activity, would bear a resemblance to their heavenly Father. You're going to be like the God who has saved you and who you love and you follow. The final beatitude, verses 10 through 12, all about persecution now different writers will split up the beatitudes in different ways they might say there's more than eight beatitudes if we just go by how many times someone is told they're blessed for doing something we might count nine beatitudes but for me i'm going to take verses 10 11 and 12 as one unit as one beatitude because the subject matter is persecution So let's look at it together. Let me read, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I take all of that as one unit of thought regarding persecution. So let's think about it this way. Since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian ought to be, I think we can rightly conclude that persecution is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. Persecution is not abnormal for the follower of Jesus. It is status quo every day in a world that is owned by our enemy and decaying under the power and the rot of sin. You'll find that you're persecuted due to the presence of the very thing you hunger and thirst for. Right? What does he say here in verse 10? You're persecuted because of righteousness. The thing that you wake up every morning thinking about. The thing you pursue in prayer and in the word of God. And in acts of mercy and peacemaking. That righteousness that you desire is the very reason the world hates you. And will want to put you under. Now to be sure, persecution comes in varying degrees. In parts of the world, Christians face torture imprisonment and execution in our corner of the world it's going to look different it's not going to look as intense but we're most likely to face rejection slander disparaging words job loss lawsuits any number of things as our country finds christianity less and less palatable the ways of Jesus are increasingly distasteful and offensive to the world around us. That doesn't mean we build up walls and it's an us versus them type thing. We're not going to cloister ourselves and huddle out of fear. We are salt and light. We advance with weapons of love and grace and mercy and peace. We're going to be just fine. You know, Jesus wins at the end of all of this. So there's no amount of fear here. We just got to acknowledge that we will not walk hand in hand with a non-believing world. We're going to face persecution. 
So what are you to do when others call you bigoted, intolerant, or judgmental? What are you supposed to do when the dictator throws you in the prison camp or when the jihadi puts the blade against your neck? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Don't retaliate like an unbeliever. Don't pout like a child, but rejoice because you have a great reward in heaven. You might lose everything on earth. Big whoop, you're going to receive everything in eternity. You can also rejoice because that persecution is a token of the authenticity of your faith. Because that's how they persecuted the prophets who came before you. You walk in a line of suffering servants following a suffering Savior. So if we're persecuted today, we find ourselves in the company of faith giants. Great is your heavenly reward. Now we took those first four attributes, and I said this, those four Beatitudes, the first four, all exist... Or they have an expression in our relationship with God. These second four, I think you can package together in a similar way. This second group of four Beatitudes find their expression in our relationships with others. If I'm merciful, it's going to be to another human. If my purity of heart results in good works, that's going to happen in the context of my flesh-on-flesh relationships. If I'm a peacemaker, I'm not making peace between me and God. He's done that through Christ. I'm making peace between my brother and my sister. If I'm persecuted, it's at the hands of the people around me. Here's, I think, a great way for you and I to package these Beatitudes so we can make sense of them and think about them in a simpler way. The first four are all about how we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second four are all about how we love our neighbor as ourselves. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? So what if you are not a follower of Jesus today? You're in that crowd looking in from the outside. You've heard from the mouth of Jesus what it means to be his follower. This is what Christianity looks like. So many times... People outside the faith characterize Christianity by political parties or, or all number of, of wackadoo things. But the words of Jesus speak for what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And you may have examples around you who haven't done this great. And guess what? You're in a room full of people who don't do this great. We're not here because we have this figured out, but because Jesus does. And we need everything he has for us. We need all of his grace. We're not here to be perfect people, but we want to walk in the way of Jesus. In these characteristics, you will not find outside of a relationship with him. These blessings you will not find outside of a relationship with him. It starts by acknowledging your spiritual poverty. Like you may be a good person and charitable and kind, even spiritually minded, but you're poor in spirit. It's time to mourn your sin and find the hope that comes through Jesus Christ alone. And don't expect that faith to be vindicated by people outside the faith. Your vindication is from God Himself, the one who created all of this, who created you, knows every heartbeat, every hair on your head, knows you by name and loves you. He's made a way for you to live this kind of life and to receive these kinds of blessings. The Beatitudes are an invitation to trust Jesus 
and to find salvation through his grace. If you are a follower of Jesus, then let's not lose sight of the fact that this is a portrait of what we are to be like as his followers. So how's your portrait looking today? Where is it missing? What, what needs to be fixed, added, tweaked? The reality is few of us are going to read these eight and say, nailed it, I've got this. We're going to read these eight and say, Lord, be merciful on me, a sinner. Help me. And he will. He'll give you an appetite for righteousness and fill that appetite. He's going to solve the poverty of your spirit, the mourning for your sin. This shouldn't feel like a hammer, just require eight requirements. It's the blessings that come to those who walk in the way of Jesus. So is there something missing in your attitude towards God, believer? Is there something missing in your attitude towards others? The answer for all of us is yes to both. So we're going to come to this Savior and ask Him to help us. If you were to take a poll of your neighbors and you were to ask them, what does the blessed life look like? You would get answers very different from what Jesus has given us today which is all the more reason for you and I to have the mind of Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for these words. We've consumed a lot today. But when we look at it from above, what we recognize is that you want your followers to be the kind of people who are blessed in their walk with you and blessed in their relationships with others. Thank you for promising these blessings, for delivering on these blessings. And Lord, for helping us to look honestly in this mirror of faith today. Help us as your followers to be the kind of people who live our faith from the inside out. Help us not to just take these things as light and fluffy platitudes, but but really as rock-solid direction for the wandering disciple, for the, for the believer with the broken heart. Let us find the life of blessing that you've promised us here, walking in your way, thinking in your way. For my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, uh, Father God, open those eyes break down those barriers I ask that even today you would bring salvation to that one as they trust in you I'm grateful Lord that when you decided how you would bring redemption to this earth through the advancement of your church it's through believers like these that we've read about today not people who are necessarily known to history who are giants who have no problems whatsoever but by humble men and women, meek servants who are utterly submitted to your word and your way. And it's through that kind of church that we are salt and light in a world that is decaying and dark. Father, thank you for choosing to work the gospel and salvation in this way. Let us be the kind of church that has a mind for you and a heart for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.